John 12, 1-8, Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who, who was about to betray him, said, why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you, will, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. As I mentioned, this is going to be then the last in our series of talks called Encountering Jesus. And if you want to catch up on any of them, they're all available on the website and on wherever you get your podcast from as well. You should be able to um, listen in and catch up if you wish. Uh, Leah has just read to us a little section from John chapter 12 that we're going to be looking at together over the next few minutes. And uh, I suppose the, um, the scenario um, that you've just heard read to you is a woman called Mary who does an amazing thing. She anoints the feet of Jesus. And so as we look at this um, passage together and just sort of examine this, this idea of encountering Jesus, uh, we'll think, I've got three headings for you. Uh, what we'll see is, number one, we'll see one encounter, one encounter with Jesus. We'll see two reactions and then we'll see three positions, all right? One encounter, two reactions, and three positions. And I hope that as we go through these verses together, you might find that you sort of slot into one of those three positions, give or take. Anyway, we'll get to that in a few moments. So first, one encounter. Encountering Jesus is kind of like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen those icebreaker boats that they sort of send up to the Arctic Circle or something. And, and, and you look at the ice and you think, there's no way anything's going to sail through that. But they have these special boats with a particularly sort of sharp, elongated, um, what's the bit at the front called? The point, the bow. The bow? Is that right? Yeah, that bit anyway. The pointy bit at the front. And, and it's able to cut through the ice, right? And, and so an encounter with Jesus is, is, is sort of like that. You, you, will, you will either go one way or the other. He'll either sort of push you to the left or push you to the right, if you like. Um, and, and so that's kind of what, what we're seeing here. There's an encounter with Jesus, and the ice will be broken up. Um, and you will either go one direction or two. If, you, if you've had no reaction or no response, I suppose, to, to, to what you think of Jesus, then the chances are you haven't actually encountered him. He will have that effect on you. Um, and so what we're going to see here is two, uh, later on, two very different reactions. But what is the encounter? What's the one encounter? Well, uh, in our verses today, you can see here that Jesus is attending a meal in his honor. This is in verse 2, a meal for him. Um, he, he's with a family that he knows very well, um, with good friends, people he loves, and it's given in honor to him. Um, in, in verse 1, it says that Jesus is, is on his way to, sort of, sort of like, uh, to the Passover festival. Uh, this is the, fe the Jewish festival uh, that commemorates God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt. And, and many thousands of Jews would descend on Jerusalem at this time every year 
uh, to mark this special occasion. So what we're reading today and what we'll look at has this very special significance, you know, that on the way uh, to the Passover celebration. And for Jesus, that means going on his way to the cross. But anyway, um, he, here he is uh, stopping at Bethany, and, and they hold a, a meal uh, in his favor, a banquet, probably similar to what we're having later on today with Pastor Bakes and Quiche and all that. And so they have a special meal. Why, why is it in his honor? Because Jesus, probably a week or so beforehand, has just, uh, I, sus- I suspect, performed one of the greatest miracles to date in his ministry. Uh, we were hearing about that last week when Glenn was speaking to us. Uh, what, what miracle is that that we're talking about? Well, in John 11, we see that Jesus raised his dear friend Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty great miracle, isn't it? And so they hold this meal in his honor to sort of, I suppose, thank him and, and mark what's happened. If you're unaware of the story, that's okay. Uh, Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. And it, it tells us in John 11 that Lazarus was sick. Um, he actually died, probably had some sort of illness or infection or something like that. Um, and, and Jesus sort of left it a bit. And, and as we're reading, we're, we're wondering, well, Jesus, why, why did you leave it? Why didn't you just go straight away? In fact, he left it four days. And it says he arrives at the tomb. And by this time, uh, the, the, the body of Lazarus, you know, they wouldn't have had fridges or mortuaries in those days. Would have been um, uh, starting to decay, starting to decomposed, you can safely say that after four days, the man was most definitely dead. And Jesus prayed a prayer for the benefit of those with him at the time. And then he cried out, it says in a loud voice from his gut, if you like, cried out, Lazarus, come out. And and, and the Bible tells us that the man who had died and been in there for four days came out. He raised him from the dead. And Jesus saw him walk out of the grave and said, unbind him, covered in grave clothes, and let him go. Free him. New life. And we just think about that for a second. Um, We have here, sorry to be a bit graphic before your lunch, uh, but we have here a dead and decaying body. We say when we do funerals, don't we, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. You know, and we're saying that, 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 that you know, the, the body, I suppose, goes back into the ground and becomes carbon and you know, dust again. But here we have Jesus speaking to a dead corpse. And his words have such power that that dead body obeyed Jesus and walked out of the grave. That dead heart began beating. That clotted blood in the veins began flowing again. Those muscles that had turned into almost like rope sprang into action. Those bones that had started to give up became stiffened. The organs that had given up the ghost began functioning. His sight was restored. Lazarus, get out of the grave. I mean, who does this? Who has words of such power? Who can, who can release someone from the power of the grave? We're seeing that here in this episode. And so they hold a meal in his honor. And look down at verse 2, the second half of verse 2. They gave dinner from there. Martha served, of course. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. 
This is the guy who, a few weeks ago, was dead and decomposing. And there he is, having dinner with Jesus, enjoying food, making the most of his new life, sitting with Jesus, this relationship, friendship, now restored. It's just an amazing picture of the gospel, the good news. That's what Jesus does. He, he brings life from death so that you might know him and have relationship with him and sit and eat with him and enjoy him. That's what he does. Think about that later. So that's the one encounter, okay? Jesus raises his friend Lazarus. If you want more details, you can go, go and listen to, to Glenn last week. But then we, we have two reactions to that. I remember I said when, when the ice-cutting the, the ice cutting boat, you know, uh, ice is diverted one way or the other. It's got two reactions, and we're going to focus a little more now on these two reactions. So there, there, picture the scene. There is Jesus enjoying the gathering. He's eating with his friends. It says they were reclining at the table. Um, in case you're unaware, the, the tables they would have had their dinner parties at were much lower to the ground, maybe a little higher than this um, uh, staging I'm sat on here. And, and so rather than sitting up at a table on a seat, like, like we'll be doing later, um, they, they, would, they would recline with a series of soft cushions and furniture and things like that. And, and sort of meals would be a much, prolong, much more prolonged experience, maybe go on all day. Um, and, and so it's just sort of a more of a restful position. And you would have your elbow, uh, on, uh, one elbow on the table, the other hand you would use for, for eating, and then your feet would be um, stretched out toward, towards the wall, if you like, you know, away from the food. Uh, and so that's the position um, that most of these people would have been sitting or lying in, uh, reclining in. Um, what a perfect opportunity then for, for Mary uh, to express her feelings towards Jesus. Um, so she is the first reaction <clears throat> in this section. It says there in verse 3, Mary, um, whose sister is called Martha, took a pound, just under, just under half a kilogram, of expensive ointment made from pure nard, comes from a, a leaf of a bush, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. We just need to maybe understand a little bit about the background in this family. Um, I suppose we could say um, that the Mary was the emotional one. There were two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary was the emotional one. Um, Martha was much more of the, uh, the practical one. She's, Martha was uh, she's probably the older sister, I'm guessing. Um, you know, she's the one who gets it done. She's the thinker. She's the reflector. She's the organizer. Mary is not like that at all. Mary was the emotional one. Mary is the one uh, who thinks with her heart. Uh, we might say that she's the one who wears her heart on her sleeve. The, the, we don't have any trouble guessing how Mary is feeling because she displays it so clearly and externally. She's the, the reactive one in the family, the free-spirited one. Uh, when, uh, when the announcement was gave that, that Lazarus was sick and indeed had died, Martha, the practical one, first met Jesus on, on the road as he came towards the grave. And she said to him, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus sort of engages her almost in a theological conversation, a theological uh, um, teaching moment. Mary had to think it through. But a little while later, uh, sorry, Martha had to think it through. A little while later, Mary appeared, and she said exactly the same thing. She said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said at that moment, was filled with grief and, and wept. 
So you've got the, the practical one, the thinker, and then you've got the emotional one. And what Mary did was astounding. What she did was so full of love and gratefulness and devotion to Jesus. It says, we've just read it in verse 3, she anoints his feet with this costly stuff and then wipes them with her hair. Um, just so you know, this, this, uh, this, this expensive ointment made from pure nard, as I say, it's from, from, a, from a tree, uh, from a bush. Um, it's the sort of thing that you would pass down. You know, it's a sort of a family heirloom. Uh, because once it's opened, you, you have to use it. You, you, you can't sort of open it and put the cork in it and, and have a little bit later on. That's not how it works. Uh, the bottle uh, that it would be contained in was um, made out of a type of clay. So that once you break off the lids, that's it. You have to. Use, it's kind of like, I suppose, in our, um, maybe, maybe like a bottle of champagne or something like that. You know, you can't just take out, take out the cork and have a bit and then put it, put it away again. It loses its fizz, doesn't it? You, know, you have to use it all in one go. Um, that's what I think, anyway. Um, but uh, it's sort of like that idea. And this would have been a, a, an heirloom that you would pass down from generation to generation because it was so expensive. And it says that she opened this thing, poured it all over, not, not just a dribble, emptied the whole thing on Jesus' feet. And this beautiful detail in verse, uh, verse 3, it says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And as we'll later see, Judas points out, this is very costly. He said this could be worth about 300 denarii, which I suppose if you, if you do a few calculations, it's just shy of 20,000 pounds. That's how much it would have cost in one act pouring the stuff on the feet of Jesus. So let's think for a moment or two about why she would have done something so extravagant, so extraordinary. Why not, why not just sing a song to Jesus or um, you know, bake him a special cake? Why, why not give a speech or, or write a poem just to declare how, how wonderful he is? Why, why does she have to be, I suppose, so wasteful, so extravagant, so over the top, And here's the answer, I think. Mary expressed her feelings in the only way, the best way, the highest way that she knew how. Right. We've already seen that she wasn't the practical one. That was Martha. So throwing a party and making food probably wasn't her, her gift. But she showed her devotion to Jesus in the most costly, selfless way that she could possibly do. She, she reflected in her actions what was going on inside her heart. And she wanted everyone else there to see how much Jesus meant to her. That's why she did it. It, it was a public action, right? Um, you, you couldn't miss it. The house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. The most beautiful, most evocative, most obvious and lavish way that she knew how to show how Jesus has made a difference. He is absolutely worth it. And so she willingly gave. First reaction. Second reaction, though, is Judas. And we see that in verses 4 to 6. Judas, boo, he is sort of like the panto villain. Uh, you don't need to know very much, if anything, about the Bible to understand that name Judas. is sort of almost part of our, our, our language. We know um, that Judas means the bad guy, right? The betrayer. 
Um, that, that he always has this awful reputation, and indeed he does. Uh, but at this stage in the, the, the journey, I suppose, Judas is not quite there yet. Um, you don't just wake up one day and decide to betray Jesus. Um, it's a process, step by step. It's a spiral, down and down and down, round and round and round, and eventually that's where you get. And he's on that process. He's on that journey. But anyway, what's his reaction? His reaction is on seeing and, I suppose, smelling this amazing fragrance. What does he do? Is his heart stirred? Wow, isn't that amazing? What should stuff? No, it is not. He says in verse 5, he objects. In verse 5, he says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Such a waste. Pouring all these resources down the drain. I mean, it smells nice for a bit, but my goodness me, think how many poor people could have been helped if we'd have taken that and auctioned it off and sold it and then used that in our, our soup kitchen or our outreach ministries or whatever it may be. And I think if any of us were there at the party listening to Judas bring this up, we, we may have thought, well, you've got a good point. See, Judas appeared to have a concern for the poor. Sounded so pious, right? so, so holy, so religious. John, John uh, the, the writer of this gospel uh, account, points out in verse 6 that Judas didn't care about the poor. He was a thief. He used to help himself to what was in the money bag. So Judas was just interested in helping himself, not helping the poor. In fact, if anything, we could say Judas was the one who was robbing the poor, not Mary. Note this well. Whilst we as readers know the true motivation in Judas's heart and mind at this moment, others at the time would not have known that. Judas brought up a valid moral objection to this extravagant waste. Judas sounded righteous. Right? He projected this idea of care and concern for the poor. But as we shall later see, as, as the gospel account goes on, his heart was far away from God and from the poor and from Jesus. He only cared about himself about his own interests, about looking after number one. In fact, we could say this. Judas just used Christian words and religious ideas as a cover to deceive people that he was just in it for himself. And so we have the two reactions, and they, they could not be stronger in opposition. Mary with her extravagant, beautiful wastefulness and, and Judas, with his hard bitterness, looking after number one and using religion as a cover. But before we move on to look at the three positions, um, I think we, we really have to look at Jesus' answer. It's brilliant. Um, if, if you think about it, it sort of sets up a bit of a, a trap. I don't think that was the point, but it does for Jesus. Does he affirm the lavish act of Mary... And in so doing, sort of almost like reject the poor or say they're not that important after all. 
Or does he side with Judas and agree that that lavish act was, was wasteful and we should really look after it? Which one does he do? We get our answer in verse 7. Jesus says, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Apparently, Jesus saw right through Judas's religious words. He knew what was going on. And he defends Mary and says, she was going to keep it or she had it kept for my burial. You've always got an opportunity to serve the poor and so you should. But let her show her, show her devotion to me while I am still here. He was saying that Mary has done this beautiful thing. She has given me this high honor in your presence. And it has meant more than, than she could have known at that stage because she was preparing me for burial. Not that the poor don't matter or that we shouldn't serve them, but in comparison, we have ample opportunities to help. We can and should help them, but I'm only here for a limited time. Mary's done this beautiful thing. Let her show her devotion while I'm still with you. Two reactions, one encounter. And thirdly then, we'll look at three positions, three positions. And this is where you might find yourself slotting into one of these three in general. Have a think about that as we go through. The first position that you may adopt is number one, you realize that you need resurrection life. You need resurrection life. Jesus, um, as we've been saying, uh, speaks life to the dead man, and he comes to life. Such are the power of his words. He is enabled, uh, able to, to speak to a rotting corpse, which then hears Jesus, obeys Jesus, and responds to Jesus, begins to live and breathe. And if he can do that to Lazarus, then imagine what he can do to you this morning. You're all looking fresh. None of, none of us have just woken up from the grave for the last four days. You may feel like that. Imagine what he can do to you. Before raising Lazarus, Jesus said to Martha on the road to the tomb, said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life and the life. What he's saying is that there is no life aside from me. There is no meaningful existence that you will ever have aside from me. Lazarus was raised and many believed in him, but that was not the end in itself. We can assume that Lazarus lived a bit longer and died a little later. But this act of resurrecting Lazarus from the grave was a picture of what Jesus would do later on, a foreshadowing of what he came to do. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you remember this meal that we're looking at here in, in, in verse 1? Happens six, it says six days before Passover. That has great significance uh, for us and to, to the apostle John who wrote this. Um, as, as we've thought earlier on, this, this Passover 
festival was celebrated yearly by the Jews who remember and commemorate um, the, the release from slavery in Egypt and how the blood of the lamb was put over the door posts of all the uh, Israelites uh, so that when the plague came and, and when the, the death of the firstborn happened across all Egypt, those who had the blood of the lamb on their house were saved. The, the angel of death, as it were, passed over. That's where the, the, the word comes from. And that's what the Jews celebrated every year, um, give or take, throughout their whole history. And here we have Jesus, six days before, not just a Passover, the Passover. The moment then when he, as the, the Lamb of God, had his Passover, as he went onto the cross to die. And so what he's saying here is that Mary, without realizing it, has been preparing my body for its burial by pouring this ointment over me. And here is the gospel. Here is the good news. It's that Jesus died. And yet on the third day, he was resurrected to eternal life to release his people from slavery, to provide life to the dead. And what, what Lazarus points to, and what Mary points to, what Passover points to, is that Jesus, when he went to the cross and died, he did that so that he might share his resurrection life with you, through those who believe in him. That's the gospel. Who needs life? The dead. And just so we're clear here, um, death is not simply what happens when your heart stops beating. That's, that's one form. But the process begins way before that moment. Right? It's like a, like a slow train entering the station. And, and everyone, in some form or other, will carry with them the effects of death somehow or other. Eventually, you will feel it and experience it. There are the physical reminders in our bodies that they are not meant to last, whether it's illness or sickness or pain. So we carry the sense of death physically. We carry the sense of death, I suppose, psychologically. Sense of darkness, a sense of death. Maybe being alive on the outside, but on the inside you feel death, you feel dead. Whether it's a struggle with depression, suicidal thoughts, body image, any of these things, you carry a great weight around with you and you sense death. Physically, psychologically. We can even feel death socially in our relationships. We can experience the decay of death in our relationships, the pain of betrayal, broken relationships, messes. So in all of these realms, we experience the effects. The Bible calls it the aroma of death, that stench of death. Sometimes it's our fault, it's our sin. Sometimes we are the victim of other people's faults and sins. Often it's a combination of those things in some balance or other. We feel like these things at one point or another in our lives. But here's the good news. I am the resurrection and the life. That's what Jesus says. Look at Lazarus. If he can do it for him, and he was in a far worse state than any of us sat here this morning, 
then Jesus can do that for you too. He says, uh, the verses have come up here. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's how you tap into resurrection life. That's how you receive the gift that Jesus died and rose to provide for you. Believe in him. Believe and receive. In other words, trust in his words. And he says himself, everyone who believes shall never die. And by everyone, he means everyone. There are no exceptions. Come as you are. Come to the cross. Lazarus was deader than any one of us. He can do it for you too. Maybe you don't have faith in Jesus, but you want to trust him with your life. We'll have an opportunity to pray at the end. And uh, you can do that. So first position is someone who needs resurrection life. But maybe that doesn't really sum up where you are and how you feel and where you're at with this whole faith thing. The second position then is that of the, the religious moral person, shall we say. The religious moral person. And we see this. We've seen this in the text already. But just to, I think it's really important for us to understand this. It is possible to look and sound and behave Christian but not actually be a Christian. Look at, look at Judas. Okay, he's an extreme example. But he's a symbol of what we can do ourselves. He spent lots of time with Jesus. He saw miracles. He even saw Lazarus. He was there eating with him. Judas heard the teaching of Jesus from his own mouth. Judas hung out with the disciples. He did all those things, and yet his heart was far from Jesus. So I think it's important to be really clear about this. Being familiar with Jesus does not make you a believer, and it does not mean that therefore you have resurrection life. It is a huge danger to look and sound and behave Christian. You, you perhaps have learned how to mimic faith, you can maybe even raise moral questions. You can speak with religious jargon. You can appear concerned for the important values of the kingdom of God, care for the poor, gospel ministry. You can use Christian language to convince yourself and other people that you are a genuine believer in Jesus. But you can have and be all of those things. And for you, they are simply a cover for a heart that just loves itself. Religion for you can just be a front, an act, a ruse. So how do you tell if all of your moral behavior flows from a heart that loves God or hates him, is close to him or far from him? Here's how you tell. Ask yourself this. When was the last time you performed an act of costly service to Jesus? When, when were you last lavish in your service and worship to Jesus? Or we could say, when did your faith 
ever hurt you in the pocket? When have you disadvantaged yourself somehow for the sake of Christ? You see, a religious moral person won't do those things. Can't do those things. The heart is far from God. Listen here, uh, just to be clear, we're not talking about being foolish or careless. We're not talking about going home and opening a credit card and maxing it out for Jesus or somehow you know, putting yourself in serious debt or anything like that. We're not talking about this. But the question is, when have you poured priceless oil on the feet of Jesus, metaphorically speaking? Or think of the alternative. Do you have a track record, if you're really honest with yourself, do you have a track record that reveals a cool or indifferent heart, a cooler and different attitude to Jesus. Your Christian faith has never really cost you anything financially, relationally, time-wise. You value your comfort over the cause of Christ. You're a religious moral person. Well, there's good news for you if you identify yourself in that category. The good news is that there is always hope. Because as we've been, been seeing, Jesus brings life to dead hearts. So if you are a religious, moral person, but you've never really given your whole being, your entire heart from the inside out to Jesus in faith and trust in him, you can turn your heart to him right now. And it doesn't matter how far away you are or feel you are from him. We were saying earlier in the service, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if that's you, you can turn your heart to him right now. And he will call you from the grave. But listen, he will do that if you want him to. If you want to stay as you are, that's down to you. That is your choice. Again, if you identify with this second position, then there's an opportunity to pray at the end. Thirdly and finally, third position, you are a believer, follower of Jesus. You are a believer, follower of Jesus. May the example, if this is you, if you are a believer in Jesus, may the ex example of Mary fire you up to go deeper and further and fuller in your love and your devotion to God through Jesus. Because we never arrive at a moment where we think, that's it, I've finished, I've completed. I am fully devoted to Jesus because we are always going deeper. We are always understanding more and experiencing more of God's love for us. We sing it sometimes, here is love vast as the ocean. You can never drink an ocean. You can never exhaust the knowledge of the goodness of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, your acts of devotion and service don't finish when you had your excited phase and now you've moved on to the more mature phase as a believer in Jesus. Remember, your devotion doesn't earn you grace. It doesn't earn your favor with Jesus. It is grace, his favor, that grows your devotion. The more you know and experience and enjoy his favor, the more your devotion will follow. And here at Foundation Church, as we enter into this new season and this uh, new building and, and new community, 
We have new opportunities to serve Jesus and to serve one another and to serve our local community. We have new avenues to learn more about him, to draw nearer to him, to have our faith challenged and deepened. It's a wonderful opportunity to enjoy God together. And so if you're not connected to a church or even this church, maybe this is your moment to put your flag in the, in the ground and say, that's it, I'm in. This is the place we trust and believe that God will grow more Marys full of fire and faith and devotion to serve him extravagantly. We'd love you to be a part of what God is doing here. So which one of those three do you most closely associate with? You need resurrection life. That's you, we'll pray in a moment. Maybe you're the religious moral person. Prayer for you too. And finally, maybe you are the believer follower who, who, who wants to do more. And our prayer will be, Lord, lead us, show us what we must do. Let's stand together and we'll pray.